Hey, welcome to another episode of the Get More Students podcast. I'm your co-host, Alex Asher, CEO of LearnCube. And I'm Herbert Gerzer, founder of HerbertGerzer.com. And what we're going to be talking about today are the strategies, like critical strategies to sell more language courses to B2B clients. Good and this is going to be a fun topic. A, it's something that Herbert and I both get into. Um, just on, on my side of things with LearnCube, we not only do we specialize in helping online language um, companies and tutoring business to grow with our classroom and online school software, but because so many of our customers actually use that software for their own corporate language customers, we're really privileged to be working with customers like Babel B2B, Elam, Language Advantage. And so the corporate language space is an area that I think not only do we good, do a good job for, but we obviously have a lot of exposure to what works and the kinds of conversations that those customers are having. I think it's going to be really relevant today, and we've got a really cool guest who I want to introduce <laughs> you to soon. But, Herbert, awesome. tell me about your experience. You've got quite a lot of work to do with B2B clients, naturally. Sure. Well, actually, um, from personal experience, I used to work um, in B2B sales for language school many years ago um, before uh, the ad agency. So I'm very interested to hear from Andy and how things have changed since then. Um, but also from the from the ad agency side, we also help B2B language companies build brand awareness and, and do lead generation campaigns uh, through paid channels as well. So, Excellent. And so if you're listening in here and you're wondering who Andy is, let me introduce you to Andy Johnson. So he is a digital learning consultant. He has over 20 years of experience in the language education sector and has actually worked with some of the most iconic you know, language schools that you might have heard of. Um, but actually, Andy, you've just, uh, uh, you know, you've, you've actually moved into a consulting role in a more kind of official capacity. Uh, tell me a little bit about your experience and how that might be relevant to today's conversation on strategies for B2B clients. Sure. Yeah. Um, thanks. Um, thanks, Herbert. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on the podcast today. So, yeah, I mean, I've pretty much been working in some capacity in education from the, the early naughty, should we say. So um, initially as a teacher, and then I moved into sort of a, a director of studies role. And then ultimately that led me into establishing an online training company back in 2014. And um, as you say, just moved away from there and moved now into digital product and um, learning consultancy. So yeah, at the moment I'm working with a number of clients, advising on how they move from face-to-face -to, -face to digital, um, how they attract more corporate clients in particular. I'm also involved in a couple of projects on product development. We're building a new digital learning product for one organization, and then I'm working with a publisher on writing content for um, an online training course as well. So quite interesting projects. Uh, it's a bit of a new challenge for me, but it's, uh, it's, it's all good. Learning That's a lot great. as we go. Fantastic. And, uh, I mean, this is going to be so relevant to this conversation on B2B clients. And, uh, when we were talking about it earlier in preparation for this, uh, you know, you've really got some, some key insights into this sector. But for those that don't have a lot of insight and are really thinking that, hey, this corporate training market is something that's really interesting for me, or even if you're not in the language, corporate language training kind of area, 
I think a lot of the the kind of conversations that we're having would be totally relevant if you're selling to any kind of organization. Mm. Um, but to kick kickstart things today, uh, maybe Andy, if you want to tell us a little bit about you know what what is what does our audience need to understand about what is the B two B corporate language market like? What's the difference between that and say selling to a B two C? Yeah, um, I think the corporate language market differs from B2C in the sense that whatever you're doing, whichever company you're working with, you know, we learn over time that you have to expect there to be almost no blueprint. Every single time we, we, we put in a training arrangement, be it synchronous or asynchronous, you know, whether we're doing live classes or just self-study courses, every single need and every single client is different. And I think that differs from B2C in the sense that you're selling products to a B2C. You're selling language courses. You're selling, in our case, online courses, which were pretty fixed. You know, they had their start and middle end, and they were pretty much the same for everybody. But when you're moving into selling to businesses, selling to corporates, it's it's very different. You know, a lot of the time is spent understanding what it is they want to achieve and then, you know, helping them get to that point but it was always different every time we worked with a different client so you're really selling like uh you're you're, it's like you're selling a a system more than selling just like a a language course to a student is is that sort of idea of a system maybe what do you mean by system i'm just kind of curious because if if i'm selling to you andy as like an independent I'm, you know, you tell me what you want and I've only got one person I need to sell. You know, I, I only need to convince you. But if I'm yeah. selling to a B2B customer, I'm saying you've got to tell me, hey, I've got all of the, these kind of areas in my business where I'm not achieving what I want. And I need you to I need to feel confident that you can bring in not just, you know, individually tutor each individual and in, in whatever they want, but. As a package, I can get an outcome for my business. So mm. I don't know if I've articulated in the right way, but I'm wondering if that could be a different way of explaining. Yeah, that. no, you're right. It's, it's. I guess system is the, the word that perhaps I wouldn't agree with. It's more like a framework because I think nice. when you're working with a corporate client, particularly one that doesn't have any exposure or perhaps understanding of the language learning sector and you know the amount of time it takes to learn a language. There's a whole bunch of other things that you need to make them aware of. So, you know, for example, understanding what do they want to achieve with that cohort? Do they want to take them from level A to level B? And if so, in what time span do they want to do that? You know, if you want to if you want to take someone from level A2 up to C1, it's going to take more than three months, I'm afraid. So it's it's about setting those realistic goals and helping them to understand how long that journey is going to take. It's also about assessment. It's about getting baselines for where you start and where you want to finish. And then I think the third point is a lot of organisations who have had English classes, you know, the traditional model is that you'll have a tutor that will come in and do an hour a week. I mean, Mm. they'll, they'll come into the physical premises, they'll do an hour a week, for example. And what we were doing um, in my previous role A lot of it was building these blended programs whereby students were self-studying. They had language courses that they were doing online and then they were having these these contact points. They were having these 
90 minute sessions on a weekly basis but it's about selling that whole package and getting or helping organizations to understand that language is not a quick fix you know a lot of people understand by e-learning a lot of e-learning is watch this video answer these questions and now you know you're you understand the fire safety principles of, of working in this building for example and language isn't like that it takes a lot no. longer and it's it's a very personal thing every learner learns at different speeds and at different you know different times they respond to different impetuses so it's it's not just selling the program, it's selling your expertise. I think that's the best way I can describe it and trying to build that framework and get getting the, the buyer to understand that it's it's not just the course, it's everything else that goes around exactly. language language training. Whether that be um, testing procedures, quality control, uh, hiring teachers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, these companies really want to know that you have all bases covered yeah. um, and that they're, they're getting everything from you and they don't have to worry about, you know, uh, any issues. Yeah. And I think and conversely as well for us selling, you know, if you're coming from a language school background, then you're very familiar with this this concept of, classes starting and finishing at certain times and taking place at certain times of the day but in our experience it's very difficult what is one of the hardest things is scheduling those times you know, oh, particularly if, you know you're working with with clients who are busy people and trying to find yeah. a time where you can get eight people in a room be it you know physical or online at the same time in order to have their their session is one of the biggest challenges that we faced you know i yeah. My Claire, who used to do all of our scheduling, um, used to tear her hair out at this. You know, when we were running programs across multiple countries for the same organisation, she's like, you know, I hate this. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, you're, kind of, you're not just dealing with your own schedules, but you're trying to deal with every corporate. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not even just the every corporate, each individual to be able to fill up the mm. sessions. Yeah. What a massive challenge. But I think you've really articulated that well in terms of examples, uh, Andy, in terms of what that buyer is, uh, what that difference is. But I think you've really said that they've got all of this, these huge, really quite different needs that you need to be able to address very succinctly and well to be able to succeed. You've really addressed the fact that there's a different, the buyer and the actual beneficiary are two mm. completely separate. Yep. people so the student is not the buyer and it has massive repercussions on the buying cycle the buying process uh, the outcomes the results that are wanted all of these things are totally different so um, moving then to what are some strategies uh, we kind of outlined the first part which was how did we reach out to uh, these these customers, and then later on we're going to be talking about more like how do you convince them and, and what kind of needs to go into that package. But this the starting piece is how do we even get into a conversation? So maybe how do we reach out to those? Anyone got any good ideas? Well, I remember from my days as a B two B salesperson, uh, dreaded cold calling was kind of the the main way me method. Of, of reaching out to people, getting out that Rolodex, uh, searching lists online of um, uh, companies and calling them and trying to get through to the HR manager or le learning and development manager. I don't know if that's changed, Andy. 
I think there's a certain amount of that still going on. I'd, li- I'd <laughs> like to think it's a little bit more sophisticated nowadays, yeah. but I don't, think for, I don't think it is particularly. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, a CRM is definitely the total friend because the buying cycles on these B2B customers are, are really very, very long. And look, you know, you always have the exception and somebody says, oh, but I just got a customer the other day and it only took me a month. And it's like, that is totally the exception. <laughs> it's only when you, because yeah. you need to get people in the in the ready state. They need mm. to have known enough about you to be able to know that you are going to serve them and then also be in the, the right part of the year, potentially their budget cycle before mm. they're willing to, to buy. So all of these ducks need to line up perfectly before you get that and so a crm if you don't have that you can't go back to when they are actually going to be reconsidering uh who their provider is going to be but again andy you know this a lot more than me but i i see a lot a lot in the LearnCube side we we have large customers and they have a a similar kind of buying cycle of i'm i love it everything about it is great i'm just not quite ready right now it's just not the right time Yeah. yeah It is interesting that side of you know when are people ready to buy, and it's um, particularly in you know what's up, what, given what's happened over the past eighteen months or so, you know training budgets are always the first thing that gets cut in organisations. Mm-hmm. But we found as well that there are still organisations out there that have training budgets and they need to spend them. So particularly towards the end of a year, sort of the autumn was always a very good time for us, a very busy time for us because people are like, well, I've got this money. I've got this issue with language. Let's get something. Let's try something. You know, and often it was done on that basis. It was, oh. it was running trials of learning courses and programs, and then that may then lead to more substantial programs in the new year. Makes a lot of sense. So we talked about cold calling as one option. I know LinkedIn, for, even for us, is kind of quite an important one for at least starting, at least getting them to know that you exist. Mm. Uh, it's And it also creates an ongoing open door to be able to continue the conversation, whereas cold calling and cold email yeah. don't really have that. Until you get a response, no. there is no open open door. Um, so we talked cold calling, social selling, LinkedIn. What else we got? I think um, for us, one of the one of the useful channels was being present at trade shows, being present at conferences, yeah. and really trying to develop that idea that we're in some way thought leaders. You know, for want of a better word, we know what we're talking about. And you know, we, we did a show at the CIPD. Um, exhibition at Olympia a couple of years ago and we were very fortunate enough to be able to speak at that and we talked about all of the aspects and all of the the sort of the the issues you need to consider when you're building out international programs and just having that platform and being part of that program was really helpful for us just to generate conversations and and as you say Alex a lot of those conversations were like yep we love what you do but not right now but (laughs) we do know we saw that six months 12 months down the line those you know, we like what you do, people became clients. Mm, so and, and having that sort of that consistent platform, be it at those face to face events or online events or just, you know, the content on your website, constantly updating your blog and things like that to show that, you know, to reinforce that message that you're that you're thought leaders. Mm. 
Interesting. I'm just thinking if there are any physical language companies listening in, they may have a similar kind of experience with agents. I can imagine it's a B2B sale in the end, right? Like it's the same kind of sense of I know that you're there. I trust that you're there. I know that you're a thought leader. Um, but I think that's kind of I think you, there are definitely some ways that you can scaffold an understanding of how to sell to this corporate corporate customer. Um, but I mean, a big thing is that network effect as well. So it's, it's very much a snowball and very much a flywheel and you have to have really good processes for following up. It seems like that's the, that's the number one. If you, if you can't, if you don't have a follow up mechanism, you're out because absolutely so few people are wanting to listen to you, know and buy you, buy from you within, mm. you know, a one to, to three month period. And I think, yeah, I think that, that follow up is incredibly valuable. I mean, yeah. one of the one of the biggest clients I ever worked with on the online side of thing things came up um, through following up a complaint. So we had um, we've had we've been through a number of iterations of our own e-learning offer before we built our own platform. And um, this is going back a few years now, but there was an organization that had bought uh, one of our old e-learning courses and it, it, they, they'd not been missold, but they'd got the wrong level for the, the student that was going to use it. So they made a complaint. And on the back of that, um, our sales and marketing director, Martin, you know, followed up, apologized and said, we'd love to come in and talk to you about what we're doing in the e-learning space in the coming months. And so we got the meeting and that led to a multi-year arrangement with that particular organization. And that was based just on following up customer feedback. So it works on a number of levels and it's about being present and following up everything Mm -hmm. that comes in, even if it seems like a lost cause, like in that case, you know, we were able to turn that one round, you know, incredibly. Yeah, I think just maximizing, different. sorry, just maximizing the number of touch points you have yeah, with absolutely. potential customers. Uh, even if you know it, 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 it's not worth it, you know, they have a service provider already, which most medium to large size businesses do, but every single year, you know, uh, birthdays, newsletters, uh, following up on events, saying, shaking hands, saying hi, it really um, matters in the long run. This is great. So definitely let's remember this when we get to that um, sort of convincing part of uh, the conversation. I'm curious about just staying in this front part of the funnel uh, initially, and then we'll go into the nurturing Mm. of these clients. But how do we even attract these corporate language customers? Because one of one of the ideas is, of course, reaching out. But how can we attract more to, you know, to our our service Uh, Herbert, I know that knowing your market and choosing a niche is, is a favorite topic of yours and including mine, but Absolutely. it seems totally yeah. relevant. Again, like if you're wanting Definitely. to attract the yeah. right fish, you need to <laughs> uh, be presenting yourself in a certain way. Exactly. I mean, you could cast out a very wide net and try to target small businesses, medium-sized businesses, large corporate businesses, but again, each of those have a very different way of going about their training for their uh, um, employees. Um, if you're looking for the quickest path to revenue, then probably the smaller businesses are um, better because usually you're dealing with 
maybe even the owner or managing director of the company and they can make you know quick fire decisions whereas you know with large organizations a huge process a tendering process often um lots of paperwork and even you know just getting to the first live class can can take months and months mm. I, I completely think... echo that i think there's it's knowing what your niche is 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 important it's knowing the the types of organizations that you want to work with it's having that profile of of who was sort of the perfect person for you um there's always issues of capacity and, and doing, you know, we found that going after tenders was a really time consuming and costly business. Yeah. And often it just didn't, the, the results, you know, they didn't equal the effort that was put in. So you have to be quite fluid, I think, with your strategy and understand the resources that you have and who is your ideal customer and, and how they fit into what your offer is and I think I've spoken before to, to language school owners about under, how you sort of how you identify and how you drill down on what on what your niche is because um, at, at London school a lot of it was to do with legal English a lot of it was to do with business English I think uh, London School of English is the the largest business English provider in the UK but certainly in London if not the UK and so being able to to focus on that particular demographic and that particular mm. cohort yield results. There's no there's no point there was no point for that company to go off and, you know, try to sell to kids, for example, because that's mm. not something they'd ever done before. So it's about having a net that's relatively wide but focusing it in on the area that you know is your sweet spot. And this goes into your kind of idea I mean it sounds like branding and messaging all align then from that decision on your the niche that you focus on or at least the kind of key markets that you focus on right because having an image of kids and saying you know at the bottom hey we also sell the ceos just doesn't really work uh what was your experience even with um with your previous kind of organizations andy about getting messaging right getting branding right it's a real challenge um so I was running the online business, and that was one of three businesses within the London School Group. And the largest one that, you know, the one that most people will have heard of is the London School of English. It's the oldest accredited language school in the world. It's been going over for 100 years. And my biggest frustration from a positioning point of view was that when you went to the group website, it took you to the school website first. And you had this, this great image of all these smiling people outside the school <laughs> in Holland Park Gardens and the messaging there was completely wrong for what we were trying to do in the online mm. space because the largest part of our business was working with corporate clients and so when you're coming you're landing on a page where you think oh these guys it's a language school and they have you know it looks like a general English language school for mm. example but it's a difficult one because that was a significant driver of of revenue across the whole group it was the largest you know the online business was growing but it was still smaller than that so it's an it's, it's a difficult challenge to get right and I think it's one of those issues where the larger you are the harder it is to get that 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 positioning right I mean to the point where sorry just one more thing Alex the point where when we set up the online business I wanted to remove the word school from the <laughs> name because we, we we weren't a school you know, we, we were selling 
separate programs to different people. We were selling single programs in a in a B2C sense, and we were doing these corporate things. We were not. Well, the one thing, the absolute one thing we weren't was a school. I think one of the things you've kind of indicated that's so meaningful to me, because it impacts everything that you do. Again, we were just even just alluding to the idea of having these, this flywheel of like nurturing emails and websites and everything really aligning with that. But the language between like, choose, you know, like, is it a tutor? Is it a trainer? What is the language that they want to hear? Because if you use the mm. wrong words over and over and over again, they're just like, you do not get what I want. Yeah. Uh, what was you? Do you have any kind of idea on some of the sensitivities around languages, language use? Sorry, Andy. Yeah, um, framing it is is really important. So when I was still a teacher at the London School, this is possibly going back as far as two thousand and ten, two thousand nine. We cha- We we were changed from being teachers to trainers. Because the language there, it was it, it sort of sat better with a corporate market, mm-hmm. and I, I remember it being sort of a, quite an amusing topic at the time in the in the teachers' room, which was then even the sign outside the teachers' room was changed to the trainers' room, and it is you know it is about adopting that that corporate persona and that approach to try and use the use the language that that works in that sector. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, it it made no difference. I was I was still an English teacher. But, you know, from my CV and from my professional profile, I w- it looked like I was suddenly changing what I was doing and I wasn't massively, but it, it's it's those small things that, you know, and on the back of that, as well as being trainers, we no longer were teaching students. We were teaching course participants. No, sorry, we were training course participants. Right. So you weren't using <laughs> students. You were using right. No, perfect gosh, example. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. And so, but it's it's a rabbit hole. You can really go down quite far into this and and thinking about the words that you use. And then, of course, inevitably, there's going to be some markets where trainer means absolutely nothing. You know. You think about the Italian market or the Turkish market or even the Japanese market, they want teachers. So from my time when I was client facing, I found myself flipping between both terms, depending on who I was speaking to. If it was predominantly a British audience, happy to use the word trainer. If it was an international audience, particularly one with perhaps a more traditional view of training, then I would be using the word teacher. What a fantastic example, though, of knowing your niche and then knowing how to speak to that niche. Like if you were te- if your sweet spot were middle sized Japanese, you know, corporates, you know, use teacher if they are large. I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, Andy, but I'm assu- if I was a, I'm just thinking a, a large corporate US based company, uh, I would possibly want trainers and I would also maybe what uh, and again really totally different tones that you might use depending on the niche you choose is it small businesses in which case you could be more casual nothing would put a start off off further if you show people in ties and you know and really formal language whereas uh for other very large customers they want everything to um really connote the fact that you are professional and you are low risk and everything you do will just align with their own corporate culture and so there would be a connection between your trainers and and these participants as an example (laughs) 
but it's just a, a great example you gave there, Andy. And so what are some of the channels then in terms of attraction, do you think, Herbert? Yeah, I mean, these days uh, a good content marketing strategy can can do wonders. So again, being a thought leader uh, or an expert in, in that field and putting out YouTube videos, LinkedIn posts, articles, blog posts um, related to professional language learning um, and really hitting on those pain points for your decision makers. I'm just thinking already just what you were saying before, Andy, on like if, if legal English was a focus, like part of your social content might be things that are not to do at all with language, but just simply very relevant to the legal market, as an example. Exactly. And if you haven't made that choice, you can't make that choice as well in mm. your content. Um, so, again, if you sort of flap around in the kind of general corporate language space, it's really easy to get kind of washed over. I don't know if you've got any kind of thoughts on that when it comes to like even the lead generation, like lead magnets that you might have used or advertising you did or referrals you got. Yeah, I mean, I can give you sort of more a broader example. And that is that, you know, when we were I was involved for a long time in generating content on the on the blog as well. And you. For the majority or for a significant amount of learners that were coming in center to do a language course we realized eventually that the language course was secondary i mean that was almost like a, a nice coincidence to them being in london and it's that idea <laughs> of, you know oh, you, you, oh and you teach as well okay <laughs> yeah but the, the, the point being that you know when someone books a language course if their language course is good which it always was great but that's not the thing that they take away with them and that's not often not the thing that they're looking for when they book it what they're looking for is that experience of mm. being in this amazing city and seeing all these sites and making connections with people and making lasting friendships so we adjusted the the sort of the the content accordingly so we did a lot more stuff on british life and in particular city life and all the things that go on during the summer during you know during christmas so you you're selling that experiential side and i do think for a lot of language schools that will that will you know those that survive what we've gone through over the recent over recent times it's going to be the ones that understand the experience side of the business. That's they're going to be the ones that succeed. Now, if you compare that to um, if you compare that to the corporate market, it's a completely different strategy. They don't really care about that. You know, they don't they don't care about that experiential side. What they want to know is what are the you know what are the tangible outcomes of me doing this program. You know what, and that's that's what you're selling to them. You're selling to them. By doing this course, you will be able to do this at the end. And that's a harder sell. That's a definitely a, a great segue to the, the next kind of cre critical part to understand is, you know, what do these corporate language customers or just, just general B2B clients, what do they care about, Andy? They care about results, you know, <laughs> as that's, that's got to be the main driver. I mean, but results, it, it varies, but in the main, they want to have you know, they want ROI. They want to know that what they're investing in is going to, to, you know, it's going to, it's going to be worth it. Um, the client I was telling you about before that we managed to get through a complaint, they're a really interesting case for us because 
that was an organisation, uh, it was a hospitality company based in London. They had very nice restaurants and a five-star hotel. And they wanted a language programme that was a value add, that was always, always made clear to us from the very beginning. We want this to be a value add. We want this to be something that rewards our staff. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the majority of people that worked in the in the food service and in the hotel itself, they were non-English speakers, you know, a lot of people from Romania, from Eastern Europe, from Poland. And so language was was needed, but they wanted it to be a completely opt-in voluntary kind of program. Mm. And that's an, that's kind of unusual. And it was actually presented a challenge for us because we said to them, well, you're not going to get take up if there isn't some kind of motiva- motivating factor here for them to actually do this, because these guys are working long hours, they're working antisocial hours. When are they going to do their learning if they don't have to do it? So we worked with the, the L&D department, and I must have, it wasn't my idea, but if it was a brilliant idea that came from one of them, and that was this concept of a learning passport. So, okay, so you, you, it is an opt-in course, you don't have to do it, but if you do it, then we've got this little roadmap set out for you. And as you tick these boxes, you get a little stamp in your learning passport. And that becomes a driver. And I thought it was quite mm. clever because a lot of these people obviously travelled to the UK in order to do this work. So the concept that, you know, that they're, they're, they're familiar with, the, you know, they're, they are travellers, they enjoy travelling. So the idea of a, of a learning passport, I think, was quite a neat idea. But also it, it led to that element of competition as well. You know, I've got this stamp and you haven't. So it it kind of it was a good motivator. And we worked on on that sort of concept um, for a couple of months before we launched it. But the other great thing about this client was I think they understood that any language program that you're going to roll out to your employers, it will only work if it's bottom up. If it comes from the top, if it says, you know, you have to do this program, I'm mandating it it's going to cause resistance. So they appointed learning champions from amongst the staff and they really drove the program. They, it, was, it, was, it was a really, really effective thing. And oddly enough, this was, um, I think we got nominated for an award for this at the PI Awards a couple of years back. The, we worked with them for about four or five years and then the initial L&D team who we had a great relationship with left and the new team came in and they I don't think they fundamentally understood the program and they were like well where's the progress where are the goals where are you know where are the learning goals it's like well we didn't build it that way because that's not what you wanted we can build it that way but we have to we have to change things around completely so we we went from having a very atypical client to one that in the end was much more closely aligned with with the the typical clients that we see and what are those metrics that you kind of see, Andy? I, I think you already alluded to them a little bit, but it sounds like, and this one, results, but what does results mean? And then what are the other metrics that you're often judged by? It depends on the program. In that particular case, that was, um, that was self-study courses. There was no trainer, teacher involvement. Um, and so the metrics that we had were time on platform, number of modules completed, and also working through a particular course that we built for them. So we, we, we wrote a whole Kitchen English course, which was designed, A, to improve vocabulary, but the main, out, the main driver of it, as well as improving their English, was to improve 
work safety because if you can't understand instructions in a busy London kitchen then you're actually a danger to yourself and you're a danger to the people around you. So that was a key driver, making sure they went through that course and they completed it. Initially, when it was an opt-in course, there was no way of assessing that. They didn't want it to be assessed. But when we had the change in L&D, we then had to build some kind of assessment module on the back of that to show that there'd been understanding. I have to say that that was a really good course to be involved in because I was project managing the writing and I had all these amazing meetings with these talented chefs in these wonderful <laughs> London restaurants. Got quite fat doing that course, I have to say. And, you know, also quite hungry when I was doing all the vocabulary for it. So I think it was a 400 vocabulary items of vocabulary yeah. all around kitchen English. But yeah, I yes. digress. What a great niche as well. Kitchen English. <laughs> Very. Yeah, I could deal with that. Very niche. Yeah. Um, one of the things you've also mentioned before, we talked about, you've talked about results, you've then talked about sort of engagement and how you might have metrics around that. One of the things I know that you're really exposed to as well, Herbert, is this idea of risk and, and doubt. What's been your kind of experience when you were in that kind of B2B space, Herbert? Yeah, I mean, showing that your school, your organization really has those processes in, in place to handle you know any issues that that might come up whether that is a change of teachers um low attendance rate uh bad feedback uh so you know having this whole kind of quality controlling in 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 kind of behind the scenes um is is really important for for, for reducing that risk and removing doubt and really taking um away as much administration and organization from the customer side as possible like you know um, scheduling is one of the one was one of the biggest issues of course um, you know if uh, participants are away then the HR manager doesn't want to have to find a new appointment they want us you know the school to handle all of that so I think having systems in place that facilitate all of those organizational matters um, is is very crucial I think um, to, to, to build on that point, I think a lot of organizations make the mistake of getting a program or a product launched with the organization and then they take a step back. They think that their, you know, their job is done. Ooh. But really, it's about how you then embed. I mean, it's only part of the work done once you've launched. Mm. You need to then start collecting feedback, think about how you can. Well, is the program working? Because mm. I think it's it's. Um, it's very common that programs don't really work first time round. There's always some things that can be done better. And it's yes. about being flexible and ready to adapt to find that most effective approach for the organization that you're working with. And I think partly one way of doing that is being quite explicit about your your process. You know, what is your proven process at the London School? It used to be on the website. This is how we work. This is how we will work mm-hmm. with you. And as you say, Herbert, it's about reducing that risk. It's about trying to address any anxieties that they may have around working with you, particularly with language, because, as I said before, language programs are, for a lot of organizations, they're a bit of an unknown. They, mm-hmm. It's secondary to other training, but trying to get them to understand how, lang- how people learn, how long it's going to take, all of those things, 
but presenting it in a way that you're going to collaborate with them, work with them in partnership to help them understand what yeah. you're trying to achieve is really key. There's definitely a lot of uh, education on the on the client's part to really so, so they know what they're getting this, themselves into. And I think uh, the the onboarding process that that needs analysis that's done on um, at the beginning is very important. So that kind of brings us on to that next part, which is on this. You know, you've, you just talked about like what they care about. So how do we turn this? How do we create tools or resources, or what do we need to do to actually convince these B two B clients to buy? For me, it starts with showing them that you are taking the time to understand what it is they want to achieve. And I know that might sound like I'm telling people how to suck eggs, but it really isn't. I think if you I've been in situations where people have been trying to sell to me and they're coming to me and they're, they're saying, well, you know, you've got to use this piece of software or this particular program because, you know, we did it with this organization and it worked really, really well. And I'm like, well, I'm not that organization. What I'm doing is different. So what is it that you're going to do? How are you going to understand what my issue is? How are you going to understand what my goals are, what I want to achieve? What what are the motivations for my learners? And I think it's worth taking that time to really understand what the problem is that they're trying to solve. Why have they called you in? And in some cases, it's about being honest and saying, well, we're not really the right fit for you. You know, if 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 you've got someone, we, we've had an organisation once that wanted to take learners who could barely speak a word of English and have them taking the advanced English exam within a month, I think. And of course, it's, it's oh. lunacy. You you can't do that. So that's in a very extreme case. But it's about mm-hmm. taking the time to understand what they want to achieve and being open and honest about what whether that's possible or not. I like that because it sort of goes on to this idea of you don't take a sale at at all costs, and that's mm. like, and it's a huge cost to you as an organisation to take on a bad deal. Mm-hmm. Not only it's because that's only part of the work. If you've now locked yourself potentially, like I know that with these big B two B deals, you're often trying to do like a multi year commitment. Yeah. What would be worse than a multi year <laughs> client that you absolutely hate dealing with because they have no concept of or your your what you believe is good and what they believe are good are two complete different things. And you might be setting yourself up not for a good testimonial, but literally for just pain and a bad testimonial at yeah. the end of that. It seems yeah. like madness. And you're setting yourself up for multiple years of misery. You know? <laughs> you're know, you not going to want to talk to that client because you know that they're not happy with, with what you've mm-hmm. got. And, you, and it's even worse when you like you have that sense of, I could have told you this was going to happen. That's yeah. the absolute worst part. So you've then talked about understanding goals, aims, and motivations as kind of key parts of of convincing, um, understanding those problems, and being open about what you can and can't achieve. How do you go about actually presenting yourself as a partner in terms of like what do you need to give them, and and what format do you feel that you need to give them that information? I think um, I'm slightly contradicting myself here by saying case studies are always powerful. Um, I mean, I said before that I had an organization said, well, we've done this for this school. We can do it for you. And it's like, well, I'm not interested because that's not what we, that's not the direction we're going in, but rather a case study that can demonstrate exactly what I'm talking about, how we can be flexible 
to meet your needs. And it gets back to what I was saying at the, you know, at the top of this podcast about how no two clients are the same. And the, the sort of the ability to show them that you understand that and to find these common points. I mean, we used to go into meetings. Meetings are always great if you can get those face to face meetings. And one of us would just be taking notes. That's all we would be doing. So at the end, we can then frame back and say, well, this this is these are these are our understandings. Um, the business development manager that I used to work with was fantastic at this. And she was always being able to say, well, we understand this to be the key pinch points. These are your challenges. This is what you want to achieve. And then it would be over to me and the, and the product team to then come up with a solution. So it's um, it is about understanding what it is they want. I keep coming back to this, but yeah, mm-hmm. showing that you're willing to listen, showing that you're willing to flex, be adaptable and not going into meetings thinking, well, this is great. So I'm going to sell them product A, B and C. Hmm. That's what they need. Yeah. You don't know that. Mm-hmm. And the chances are they probably don't need those things. And that can only come through a lot of question um, answering or question asking. Yeah. yeah. Herbert, I was, I heard a really fantastic quote and it's actually really help, uh, helpful for even LearnCube when we're kind of thinking about our own enterprise level customers. But this, mm. it was like a quote that says something like over 70% of B2B customers have actually made their choice before they even speak to a customer. And I just think about, Andy, what you've said about the website. If you have it on your website, they've already been able to partly educate themselves. And so when they meet with you, they're just verifying that you're going to be this great partner for them. And I just think on your expertise, Herbert, with understanding video, understanding different formats, can you tell me about the formats you feel are really helpful and beneficial in this B2B space? Right. I mean, it's probably still quite traditional, but but having having brochures, whether that be a physical brochure or, or a PDF with you know case studies and your proven processes laid out, but um, video, you know, if if you can create a video that um, shows your expertise, maybe even has has some customer testimonials that um, will go a long way in just building trust um, in the front end, and so when you get to the meeting then you're just you know pro- proving your point um you know, obviously listening to the customer and then um providing a custom solution to them uh, yeah great great points um we're going to go into our last sort of section which is on how to deal with unreasonable expectations and we've, we've kind of i mean i i'm very aware of this as well but i think andy you have probably have the most uh certainly the most uh proximate uh, experience with this what are some of the expectations that let's just start with just throwing some ideas like what are the the kind of crazy things that you hear and then we'll go into like how you actually deal with those but i'd be curious just to brain dump a little bit about what kind of expectations often business customers have i think um sorry to take a slight step back but one of the expectations that clients have i think there's 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 an element of you need to do your cultural due diligence before you even speak to a client because there are you know in our experience of working globally going into those meetings you there's there's two things there's an expectation and then there's a way of framing that expectation so for example 
in English, often it's a case of tell me what you want me to do and then I'll give you all the background later. So, you know, what, what are the headlines? What do you want to achieve? That's the first thing. And then I will fill you in on all the ways that we have the experience in order to do that. But you, you compare that to, for example, to French and the communication style is very much theory first. So you go into all the reasons why you're the most fabulous partner in the world and um, and all the qualifications. You give all the rationale, all the philosophy, if you like. And then you go to the practical details of how you build that program. And just getting that sort of thing in your head first. Another example is particularly working with Middle East clients. There's a lot of hyperbole. Um, there's a there's a lot of demand that, you know, what we're looking the expectations here to an English person, although I'm I'm Swedish, but anyway, to a Western European, these sound quite ridiculous, you know. Mm. But then it's it's about sort of peeling back the onion layers of the culture and understanding at its heart what you want to achieve. And getting to that heart, getting to what it is they want to achieve comes in different ways. It takes different times. I'm, I'm doing a bit of work with a Mexican client at the moment, and what I've noticed about their working style is that they were, they call a lot of meetings, and we discuss a problem for an hour, and then at the end, I will give them the same solution I would have give them, given them if it was a five-minute call, but they're happy because they feel that the problem has been aired mm. and the expectations have been met in that sense. So I realize that this is sort of slightly not answering your question <laughs> about what are the unreasonable expectations. But it's it's gives you an insight into where those unreasonable expectations may come from. I, I think it's actually a better. I think it's yeah. a much better <laughs> yeah. question, Andy, because what you've said, you've actually answered, which is how do you deal with those un, unreasonable expectations? Mm-hmm. Um, just curious, curious. I mean, you've given actually three brilliant examples, but what were those actual expectations? So one, for example, was I, I'm sure was like unreasonable expectations of how to go about something. There might be other unreasonable expectations about what you can achieve in a certain time. For a certain budget, like what are the like? Can you articulate what those sound like? I think generally it's down to the the, the amount of time an organisation has and the amount of learning they want to take place within that time frame. And at its most basic, you know, the the Middle Eastern example I was giving you, this was this was one person who was coming to Europe to take a very high level role but the language wasn't there but they were starting on you know October the 1st so you had a very short amount of time in order to get them where they want to be and so the client's asking for 40 hours of intensive Skype lessons a week and you know I'm sorry but it's just going to kill the poor guy you know and he's not (laughs) after the first 10 hours his just brain is going to be mush he's he's not going to be able to do anything so it's that's one example of uh, of an unrealistic expectation so with that particular client we developed a program where we limited those contact hours to a manageable level but they were able to do online study as a, as, a, as a separate thing and we're able to sort of marry the two up in a really blended approach and then we because it was the organization paying for it was the, the organization which he was working for he was basically just changing he's going from Riyadh to Brussels I think we then put in a much more achievable program that 
carried on once he was in post. And so it was just a much more gradual and incremental approach. And I think, you know, once you position it and you explain all the reasons why 40 hours a week for three weeks is not going to achieve what you want it to achieve, they're cool with that. They're fine with that. The client completely understands that because you've demonstrated all the reasons why it's not going to happen. It's when when you talk, Andy. I, I definitely get the impression again. You uh, key thing, key themes that I hear from you is this idea of you being a partner, of you listening first rather than mm. trying to shortcut the meeting. Like even just the way you're talking about your your Mexican um, colleague, you know, you really even just you just said, you know, like I I just doubt I just listened for that hour. I knew it was going to take an hour even though I knew that I wouldn't change my mind necessarily, but that was part of that process. So again, I think mm. you've really shown what you need to be able to deal with unreasonable expectations, show your partner, let them voice their concerns, help them achieve and really buy into the way that why they're asking that question may not be the right thing that they're asking for, or like that might not be the right goal and, and getting them to, to come with you on that journey on, on what the better goal might be and, and being the expert in the room, but that mm. friendly partner. It seems to be a couple of themes that I picked out of what you just said, Andy. I don't know if I've missed something as well. No, I think, I think that works for both sides because ultimately learning programs and relationships with corporate clients, they are human. They're at a human level at the end of the day. Mm. And if you're prepared to put the sort of the, the hard graft in at the beginning, of the listening, of the consultation, of the understanding and trying to reframe their problems and, and, and talk about what's an obstacle, is it insurmountable, how can we get around it, and take them along with you on that journey from the very, very beginning, whilst all, always being open and transparent around you know what you can achieve, what the timeframes are going to be. I think that's the secret to selling to b2b to be perfectly honest it's um it's purely down to relationships and knowing what you're talking about because the more you do this the more the relationship goes the more trust you have in each other i mean it's very easy to say the more they trust you but to be honest it works both ways as well so those you know those clients i've been talking about i know that i can go to them and say this element isn't working and this is why and they trust me and I trust them. We've got that relationship so that we can make changes and they don't view it as anything other than me trying to, to help the relationship and the program that we're working on. Brilliant. Andy, I think that's the perfect place to end because <laughs> I think you just summarized everything that we've really talked about today and in, in a really great way. We've, we've really discussed, you know, what it means to be selling to B2B customers. We've talked about, how to reach out to these customers, how to attract these clients, you know, what these clients really care about, how to convince them, and of course, you know, how to deal with their expectations, reasonable or otherwise. So thank you so much for this, Andy. Um, Andy, I'm sure a lot of people will be really interested about what you do and where you're going. Do you want to give the, the audience here a way for them to follow you, your journey and possibly even to, to learn more about what you offer? Sure, yeah. Um, have a look at me on LinkedIn. I think that's the best place to start. It's Andy Johnson. Um, and as I say, I'm really enjoying this stage of my career. I've I've stepped out of working for a, a, a large organisation and I'm 
very fortunate to be working on projects and working with people now that are just really interesting, fascinating even. And I'm learning again, which is which is really important for me as well and feeling that I can offer value. And really, it comes down to, I think, the key areas that I'm working in is project management, it's product development, and it's that kind of that sort of that that sweet spot of helping organizations to get better at what they're doing, helping organizations to understand what their offer is, how to build it, how to improve it. And ultimately, as you say, how to attract more students at the end of the day. (laughs) Brilliantly put, Andy. And uh, likewise, if you're looking to um, hear more from Herbert's uh, expertise in marketing, you can find him at herbertgertzer.com. If you're interested in virtual classroom or online school software or a system that solves your problems with teaching online, uh, you can visit uh, my own business, www.learncube.com. But really, we want you to subscribe to the Get More Students podcast. Why? Because every two weeks, Herbert and I uh, put together this podcast. We have fantastic guests like Andy Johnson, um, who can give you some really great ideas, inspiration, and motivation for your marketing of your tutoring or language business. Uh, so hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks again. Catch you in the next one. Thanks, everyone.